You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger, and I suppose that I should mention here at the top that this is going to be the last episode of the podcast that I'll be doing for a few weeks. As you may or may not know, my wife Jen and I and the cats will be moving back to Memphis from Chicago imminently, and I need some time to pack everything, including the recording gear, up and then move, unpack, get settled, etc., I can't tell you how excited I am for the future of the show, of course, but also this next chapter of my life in Memphis. But first comes the whirlwind, so it's time for the show to take a brief pause. In the meantime, you can see Back to the Light live in Memphis on March 17th at the Green Room in Crosstown. More info on that at the break. My guest for this show, Mark Edgar Stewart, has his own sold-out engagement at the Green Room this Friday, March 4th. He also has a brand new album called Until We Meet Again, which you can find at markedgarstuart.com. That's markedgarstuart.com. It's also streaming everywhere you stream music and available on CD from Shangri-La Records. He's one of my all-time favorite Memphis songwriters and a great guy to boot. We have a great conversation here, and we'll get to that in just a moment. First, let's hear the single from the new record Until We Meet Again by Mark Edgar Stewart. This is What's Louder Than Love. Change the clothes. What's that of the love? What's that of the love? What's that of the love? On yo. What's that of the love? What's that of the love? What's that of the love? Don't say it's 
You've heard the single. Now let's get into my conversation with Mark. Mark, thanks for joining me on the show again. Man, thank you for having me. Man, now it's official, isn't it? I love it. Thank you. Yeah, this is this is the one that's for real. This is the one where we're actually going to talk about you instead of other stuff that you're up to. Who wants to talk about me? But yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is uh, looking forward to it. Thank you so much. And if if I don't mean to, you know, toot my own horn or whatever so much, but I'd like to just put it out there that I, I was pretty in on Mark Edgar Stewart, the solo artist, uh, before most people, if not everyone, in the media, wouldn't you say? Toot it, baby, toot it. Yeah, I, I would say so. There was a handful of people that, that were really encouraging from the, from the get-go, you know, like guys like you and, and Robbie Grant was a really big deal in the very, very beginning because we were we were playing in a vending machine together at the time where I was I was the, the guitar, keyboard, bass guy a little bit, and, and he was... He was real encouraging, you know. I was like, "Man, you should write songs and sing them too," and that's kind of how it all started. Well, I remember writing an article about your instrumental music project, the M. Edgar Stewart and the Slightly <laughs> Possessed. I and I'm going to say that that is the first official Mark Edgar St- Stewart solo article out there. Man, Are you're you- going way back. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right here, I was in yeah. from the jump. Yeah, yeah, I forgot all about that. Yeah, that was some uh, that was some recordings that me and John Argros did. Just some just just some instrumental jams, and and then uh, uh, I finished them up at my house. I'm a little cassette four track recorder, and uh, oh man, I forgot all about that. Yeah, that that might have been my first dabble into the solo world, even though I I didn't sing a note on it. That was my my my, my garage rock colors were definitely flying on that record there. So it's definitely a different animal. Well, before we get into your solo career. I kind of want to start at the beginning and talk about your life growing up in Arkansas. How did you get into music? Let's see. Uh, well, I mean, I, my dad, you know, my, my dad was a was a big fan of music. You know, he didn't really play an instrument. I mean, he dabbled a little bit, but uh, but I grew up on all the I grew up on everything. Son, I grew up on uh, Jerry Lewis and Johnny Cash and, and and everything that Sam Phillips ever ever produced, and 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 that was kind of like my my, my upbringing. You know, and then, of course, Chuck Berry and just everything that was from his generation. He, he was a little bit older. Uh, so that was kind of my start, you know. And then, you know, I remember one day my dad saying, well, you, you should uh, you need to find something to do. You need to find an extracurricular activity, uh, anything but sports. 
you know, because uh, my, my, my brother played sports and, and apparently he's, he's got bad knees to show for it. My dad does too. He's like, you should play an instrument. So I remember uh, uh, in seventh grade, we, we, there was a, there was an orchestra and I just remember that upright bass. And I remember that, that image always sort of, sort of stuck with me because you saw those upright basses and all those old sun recordings and Bill Black and all that. It's like, well, I want to play the big old bass. And he's like, okay, the doghouse bass it is. So I joined my seventh grade orchestra and that's, that's kind of where it started. And, and somewhere sometime around there too, I was, you know, taking some, some guitar lessons too, you know, just, just like every kid, but that, that was kind of the gist of it. And then, uh, uh, and I ended up being, uh, uh, a way to go to college. I remember when I, by the time I got to high school, you know, I, I got an okay at it, and, you know, and I, I was in the, the Arkansas symphony and all the little symphonies and stuff like that. So playing classical music and, and Beethoven and all that. And then, and then I applied for a scholarship uh, to, to, to Memphis state because I just knew I wanted to live in Memphis. You know, when you're from a small town, Memphis is a big city. And uh, I always knew that, that Memphis is where I wanted to land. And, and that's, that's pretty much how I got to Memphis. Did you have rock bands in Arkansas or did they not did that not happen until you got to Memphis? Oh yeah, I had rock bands. So so while this was going on, so in, in high school I was in a little band. Uh kind of a cool story. I've told it before. Uh, my very first band uh I was in was with uh, uh, uh my friend Brian Jackson and his uncle was Wayne Jackson of the Memphis Horns. And uh and and that was kind of cool. Of course we were too young to fully appreciate what a badass Wayne Jackson was. We just thought it was cool that he played on Peter Gabriel, you know, Sledgehammer and U2 rattling hum. But for Christmas, I remember Wayne told Brian that he could come up to Memphis and record uh, and bring, you know, so we, we went up to Memphis and we recorded. So that was really my first time in Memphis. And uh, I think the very first session was at Sun Studio. Uh, and I think we had a second session at, at, at Sounds Unreal. Uh, with Don Hopkins behind the helm and, and, and Wayne kind of produced and and the music wasn't really that good but it was just a really good experience and and I remember sometime in that one session uh, uh, we wound up I wound up playing the bass parts too because I was a bass player naturally but I was actually playing guitar on this one and and Wayne just I remember Wayne telling me he's like hey you you should just play bass you you kind you kind of have a thing for it. And, and I don't know, I just really kind of took that to heart, you know, and I just remember I kind of got my first real bass lesson from Wayne Jackson. I just remember him saying things like, make love to the drummer in the pocket, in the pocket, make love to the drummer. You know, it was real inspirational. And, and of course, after that experience, I, I knew damn well I would have wound up in Memphis. He's already had a buddy in Memphis, and that was Wayne. And, and uh, so he was kind of a mentor in the early days. And, and of course, we, we lost touch over the years, but, but we kind of reconnected there toward the end of his life, which was kind of awesome. So, so all that in a nutshell is how I got to Memphis. What year was it that you finally got to Memphis? Okay. Uh, uh, that would have been 1992. So I graduated high school in 92 and came up to, to Memphis state, the, the, uh, the fall of 92. Yep. I'm old. <laughs> was the Pawtuckets your first main Memphis project? Yeah. So, so when I first got to Memphis, um, I didn't immediately jump into the, the music scene. I, I was a little shy, weird kid with a still had my little teenage mustache, and and I wasn't that cool. And uh, I, I played in the symphony, and, you know, and I was just kind of hanging out around campus, and and I wasn't really happy those first couple of years. You know, I was actually kind of depressed, and you know, and I just I, I wasn't doing what I came to Memphis to do, and that was actually play music for real, like in bands, you know, and not just this be this whole orchestra kid. So, so I remember, uh, probably one of the biggest 
game changers in my life. It's so weird. I guess you call it kind of a serendipitous moment, or if that's the word, correct word for it. Um, the Memphis Flyer in, in the old days, printed publications was a big deal. Do you remember printed publications? I do. I pa- do. Paper. I mean, I mean, the commercial appeal was an inch thick, man. And and man, every time the Memphis Flyer came out on a Wednesday, man, you 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 were just fighting people to get to it, man. It'd be like ten stacks in front of every store, and, and I'd always get the Memphis Flyer and look on the back, and on the back was all just musicians and and help wanted and and people trying to join bands. So I started reading all that, and and I found a little ad in the in, in the Memphis Flyer that said, "Bass player wanted influences the band and Blue Mountain," and that was pretty specific in 1994, you know, I, you know, the, the band, a lot of people were talking about the band in 1994, you know, it was before that whole resurgence and, and Blue Mountain was just sort of a local thing out of Oxford, Mississippi. But those are two bands I absolutely loved. So I remember thinking, wow, these are my people. And uh, I called that number and, and on the other end was Andy Grooms. You remember Andy? I remember him well. Yep. And I remember Andy played me this song called Palookaville over the phone and, and blew his harmonica into the phone piece and it about busted my eardrum. And 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 we had an audition and it kind of changed my life, you know, because those those four guys in that band wound up being like my best friends, you know, and we wound up sharing a house together and, you know, went on the road and played records. And I mean, yeah, it was just, it was just one of those moments where, you know, everything, everything to that point had stopped. And I just found a new group to hang with. And I finally found my people after after 20 years, you know, because I never really found my people in Pine Bluff, Arkansas either, you know. How long were the Pawtuckets together? So we started about 95. And I think we, we, we might have made it to Y2K. Actually, we did make it to Y2K. Because uh, I remember that gig was a big deal. So we, we, we played the high tone. Uh, Y2K and there was talk about the world coming to an end and, and all the computers blowing up and, and terrible things happening. So some I mean, we're all nervous. So we, we, we played that gig. Uh, that would have been 2000. I think I might have hung on a few months after. So maybe six and a half, seven years. Had about two records to show for it. Why did that band run its course? Uh, it that, seemed that, like different. at one time you were headed for big things. Yeah, man. Really good things were happening. You know, I mean, I look back on it now and you know, of course, this whole Americana all-country thing, whatever they're calling it these days, you know, that was kind of just sort of budding back in those days. And and, and we were accidentally kind of part of it. I don't, we, we didn't seek out to be, but that's just kind of how we sounded. And uh, yeah, we, we, we were starting to play out of town a bunch and tour. And we, we went out with the drive-by truckers, you know, uh, uh, one time, which was kind of cool. And I can remember uh, we, we played the, the Sutler in Nashville and our opening act was like a 14-year-old Justin Towns Earl. And I remember that that kid was a hot mess, and 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 Steve Earl was on the front row. We were just freaking out. I was like, "Oh my God, you know, this is this is crazy," you know. So, so we were actually, I really got to see a lot of things with that band, and 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 I, I really hated that that it didn't work out, you know. But 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 the gist is, you know, we were just kids. We were growing up. We did a lot of growing up together, you know. And we actually had a lot of, you know, we had some events happen during that time that kind of kind of affected us, you know, and. And, I, and, and but the gist of it, it was it was a two frontman band. I'll say that without getting in trouble. We had two singer songwriter frontman, and and uh, there's always a little little friction when you got two chefs in the kitchen, if you know what I mean. That's a pretty common tale with two frontman bands. So that's the gist. <laughs> After that band ended, where did you go next? Was that the one four fives, or was there a stop in between? 
Oh yeah, the, the, the one point five didn't come through quite a bit later. So so after the Paul tickets broke up, uh, actually we had broken up. I think I might have been the first one to leave. Um, I remember we get to the point to the end, and people growing up, and you know, and then some folks wanted to go get a real job and, and have a life, which I totally don't blame them, you know. But I just sort of knew I wanted to play music, you know. And 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 about that time, when I saw the writing on the wall, I got a call from Susan Marshall saying that uh, Alvin Youngblood is looking for a bass player to go on the road and tour with him. And Alvin was a, was a pretty big deal back in those days. He's still a big deal. So I just sort of took that as my my little my little cool opportunity, and, and I went and played with them, and it worked out. And I climbed in a van and, and, and toured with them for about, about a year or two, and it was just it was, it was life-changing. It was awesome. So, so, so I think shortly after that is when the band kind of just decided to officially quit. I know you've had opportunities in the straight world at various times in your life. Why do you think you've always resisted committing to, you know, just having a job and a regular life? Well, I mean, I've, I, I did. I mean, I've always, I was in and out of the, the liquor biz for, for a long time. You know, when I was in college, I was working at Buster's, you know, and, 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 and it was always a great job to have as a musician, you know, and, and, and I quit a few times and went and toured and traveled. And, you know, when I, when I quit doing the Alvin thing, you know, I came back to earth and came back to Memphis and, and got my job back there at Buster's, but I was always able to play music and they, they would let me do what I wanted to do. It was actually a perfect job. So, so I, I definitely have dabbled in the real world, you know, and I even, you know, uh, before I quit again, I was working at Old Dominic for, for, for a year, you know, at the front of the house manager, I had my big boy pants on trying to have a real job. And, and, uh, my soul just wasn't happy. I wasn't playing enough gigs, you know, they're great people and the job was cool, but I just know I want to get back to playing music and, and, and I did it. I've been doing it ever since and it's totally working out, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad I took the, the leap. Well, all right. Well, tell me how you did get in with JPK. Okay, so so I uh, came back uh, uh, after Alvin and kind of kind of jumped back into the, the Memphis music scene again. And this is all after nine eleven. It's so weird, you know. We we, we sort of everything's like pre nine eleven and post nine eleven. So 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 the Alvin gig started coming apart a little bit during nine eleven when all his tours are getting canceled and everything just sort of hit the fan back then. So I remember, yeah, you know what? I'm just gonna. I'm going to just come back to Memphis and hang out here for a while. I just met my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, you know, and that was another reason, you know, a girl make you want to come back home too. Uh, so then I joined a, a little band uh, uh, called the Secret Service with uh, Justice Natchez and Steve Selvage and my, and my partner in crime, Johnny Argrose. So we, 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 we played around for a couple of years and, and uh, we, we made a good little splash here locally, man. That was a, that was a really fun band. And, and uh, during that time, that's when I met John Paul Keith. You know, Justice is playing guitar in my band now. Justice is great, man. Uh, I need to I need to reach out to him. It's been a while since I've talked to him, but uh, I remember Justice back, back at the at the uh, songwriter nights at the Flying Saucer. I mean, that guy was a player back in those days, and he was awesome. He was fantastic. You know, like way before I ever started doing my little folky thing, man. Justice was ten years ahead of me, man. That that guy was he, he had something. And of course, in the Secret Service, you know, he kind of like put the sensitive stuff aside and then we started like rocking out and, and uh, it, it was a whole lot of fun. Yeah, me and my bass player, Eric, have been trying to talk Justice into, you know, playing some songs with us. And I wonder which side of him we'll see. 
There's no telling, man. I mean, I, I know he likes both. He's good at both, you know, especially uh, I love those early days of seeing him at those songwriter nights. I mean, he just had such a huge voice. It was like, bam, you know, and, and then five years later, we're in a band together, and he's using that big voice to, to sing about things taste like a milkshake and Camaros, and it, and it totally worked, and it was special, and it was awesome, you know? <laughs> Well, thank you for bringing that up. I actually absolutely yeah, yeah. Had, had justice on my list of things to ask you about. But the reason I kept hitting on the JPK thing is because I know you have said in the past that he was an influence in your yeah. decision to go solo. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, that's why I wanted to ask about that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I hooked up with JPK uh, in the middle of all that, too. I've, I've dabbled in all kinds of things. Uh, uh, me and Argroves had a music store for a little while called Taylor's Music. We kind of took that over. Uh, that's that's the canvas building today, but that used to be our music store. And uh, man, I just met so many people having that music store in the community. You know, that's where I kind of got to know Jim Dickinson. He was always at the doctor's office across the street. He'd come over and sit in my store. We'd just talk and tell stories. And you know, I remember I met uh, uh, um, all kinds of cool people that are kind of kind of famous now. You know, like Nico Case and. And Jason Molina, is that his name? Yeah, yeah, um, just cool people. And and JPK was one of the many that would come in there. He just moved to town, and and uh, uh, we, we we really kind of hit it off, man. I finally found somebody who shared my my my, my musical uh, taste, like all the way, man. Like JPK was into all the sun stuff, the old stuff, the fifties and the sixties, man. He liked the boogie woogie. He he played Chuck Berry, man. He was just a just a jukebox, man. The guy just knew the words to every single thing. And we used to just have jam sessions at the store, me, him and Johnny. And we just hit it off, you know, and, and I, I loved playing that music. And, and for me, that was really kind of coming back home again. That's, that's really why I moved to Memphis was that music right there. And it just took me about 12 years to the to, to final JPK. And, uh, and, and, and we rocked it hard for about five or seven years, three records. And, 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 uh, yeah, I learned a lot from, him. learned a lot from uh, being a band leader for one, being a professional, um, you know, I was, uh, I was kind of a little bit naive and crazy back then and, and had plenty of shenanigans and just, just learned a lot from him, but really songwriting was a big thing. And I was just inspired at how he, how he did things. And I kind of wanted to kind of do that. So I started paying closer attention to, to all the songwriters I was hanging out with, but yeah, he, he was a, he was a big deal for sure. Were you writing songs the whole time that you were doing the sideman thing? No, no. I've, I've never really tried to write a song. I've never really tried to sing a note till till the whole sideman thing, you know. And I could barely even hold down a harmony in the other bands I was playing with, man. I mean, singing harmony and playing bass was kind of like rubbing your head in your tummy at the same time. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> to the dismay of all the front men that I played with, I was like, dude, can you not get it right? Can you not remember the words? But, but it wasn't until, you know, after I, I, I went through the whole cancer bit and then lost my dad, I was just, that, that's kind of what inspired me to maybe try something different, you know, and, and, and maybe I actually, for the first time in my, my, my life, I actually had something to write about. I never had anything to write about before, you know? So, so yeah, it wasn't until about, actually about this time, 10 years ago when all that started. Yeah, for sure. You were pretty well embraced by the scene and the media, uh, I, I suppose pretty much out the gate. Was that surprising to you? Yeah, it, it was, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I, I was, I, I'm very appreciative of it, you know, and, and, and uh, yeah, it was kind of awesome. You know, I kind of, at times I didn't really feel deserving. It's like, man, it's, 
it's just my first record. It's not that big a deal. It's all, it's full of all kinds of skeletons and songwriting cliches, you know, but, but, but people seem to really like it, you know, and there's a story to it. And, you know, and now I listen to that first record blues flu 10 years later for, for a little while. I was like, Oh man, I'm so green. I don't know what I'm doing, but, but I listened to it not too long ago when I was trying to AB records for, for this other project I was doing with the mastering God. And I remember giving blues for Lou a, a, a listen and just thinking, you know what? I stand by it, man. That's a moment in time and it's cool and it's kind of quirky and people seem to like it. So, so yeah, I stand by blues for Lou. So yeah, it turns 10 years old, uh, next year. Wow. That's hard to, hard to wrap my head around. And, uh, 2013, you know, wild. <laughs> time out before we get back to the show i must make you aware of a few things the new jeremy scott lp bear grease is out on back to the light records you can get it in stores and from digital outlets and online at backtothelight.net. we also have two big shows coming up in memphis thursday march 17th back to the light songs and stories will be live at the green room in crosstown I'll be hosting and sharing songs and chatting with an absolutely amazing lineup of guests. I'm still shocked that this all worked out. I'm talking about Heels, Corey Brannon, Alicia Trout, Will and Michaela from Rosie, Jeff Hewlett, and Graham Burks. They'll all be joining me. You don't want to miss this. For more information or to get tickets in advance, visit crosstownarts.org. And last but not least, Saturday, March 19th, one of my favorite bands, The Subteens, will be at B-Side in Minglewood Plaza with yours truly opening the show. As always, stay tuned to backtothelight.net. Welcome, my friends, to my funeral. Hope you had a real good time. All that was said got to my head. I'm not that great of a guy. I cheated and lied back in high school. I chopped down my family tree. High school, I thought to smoke lots of pot, stay home and watch TV. I wasn't that good of a person, but you made me feel so fine. That was some bull. Like coffee apple, I'm so sorry I died. Pictures of me out in the hallway, flowers with sweet eulogy. What was that part without my big heart? I gotta disagree My brother, I love you more than ever But remember when we were kids You got the blame Well, I had free reign Yep, I got away with it I wasn't that good of a person But you made me feel so fine That was some bull Like coffee apple I'm so sorry I died address the congregation 
faces so far and wide I was so touched but you said too much I'm so sorry I died but thank you for thinking of me kindly and thank y'all for showing up in droves you kept the faith and now what a waste I told you I'm a real asshole I wasn't that good of a person but you made me feel so fine That was some bull, like coughing apple I'm so sorry I died That was some bull, like coughing apple I'm so sorry I You've just heard Coffin Half Full by Mark Edgar Stewart off the new record Until We Meet Again. Let's get back to our conversation. I know you have said at different times that you sometimes worry that your material is too heavy for people. Do mm-hmm. you do you still feel that way listening to some of your older stuff? Not, not as much. And, 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 and maybe heavy is not the right word. I, I've used the word heavy and I should probably stop using it, but 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 maybe personal. Personal is the word I'm, that I probably have meant to say. Uh, yeah, my first record, you know, uh, it really wasn't that heavy. It's just, you know, but the second record sure was, you know, like I, I kind of put it out there a little bit. And that was just me kind of being a naive songwriter. I, I didn't know better. You know, just every song was about what was happening in my life. And and, and I just put it out there. And, 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 you know, I probably could have done a better job of using metaphors instead of just saying it. But, but you know, that's kind of, kind of. That was my thing, and 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 I love that second record. You know, I think that's the record that I'm probably gonna gonna be chasing around for the rest of my career. I'm still chasing that record around. That seemed to be the one that people responded to the most. And so maybe being quote heavy, maybe it resonated with some people. You know, or or being so personal. How does your family and your partner feel about your honesty in songwriting? <laughs> uh, I think my wife hates it actually. Um, you know, I, I really kind of put some of our stuff out there on that second record, you know, and, 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 uh, she didn't hate it. She's like, really, did you have to write a song about that? <laughs> you know, she had, she has a sense of humor. She's cool. She's awesome. But, but yeah, like, like even the title track of that record, Trinity, my dear, that's just a song that I wrote and I recorded a week later and, and I've never played that song since, you know, it really was just a moment in time about a really awful experience that that, 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 me and her went through, you know, and, and, but even to this day, even just like a, a, a two months ago, I had somebody hit me up on my fan page from, from the UK telling me how much that, that record means to her and how much that song means to her. And she was asking permission to, to, to cover that song. And I was like, it's pretty personal, but be my guest cover it, you know, please do. So, yeah. Do you think writing those records was, crucial for your personal development to work your way through those situations? I think so. I, I guess, you know, I, I guess I wasn't really thinking about that hard at the time, you know? Um, but looking back on it, yeah, because I feel like I've kind of, kind of turned the page on that a little bit, you know, cause when, when I did the third record, Mad at Love, I was just so paranoid about all that kind of stuff. I just purposely didn't write about myself anymore. I just, my inspiration was always other people's problems, you know, like, like, you know, I had a lot of friends going through some stuff and, and all their business wound up in my songs, which is kind of funny. That's that's the risk you take when you're when your buddies are the singer songwriter, because you know I might write about your shit in the song. But uh, that's sort of what happened on the <laughs> on that third record, and and of course this new one I'm about to put out. You know, I I, I 
completely just kind of turn the page again and want something completely different, you know, and, and uh, hopefully people are going to like it. So fingers crossed it comes out about 11 hours. Yeah. You've, you've said to me a few times that you wanted to make, you know, a happy record and an, an upbeat record is, is that this, or did it turn out it, a different kind of, it kind of is. It, it was kind of meant to be the upbeat record, and it definitely more upbeat than my other ones. Uh, but this record is just really, really. It's kind of lighthearted. It's just kind of easy. Uh, I, I keep telling folks it's my it's my quasi concept record about about love and and life and afterlife. You know, and every song is just really simple. It's easy. Uh, it, it's songs that are relatable. It, it's songs that maybe even my my mother would could even listen to you know so i just really wanted to make something kind of accessible but everything's about love it's just me and acoustic guitar for the most part you know it's far from heavy but i think it's probably one of the most sincere things i've done you know but uh but it's it's it's, it's relatable and i think a lot of that goes to my producers too they they really wanted songs that, that folks could identify with you know and kind of you know no more journal entries <laughs> well you've never really lacked for sincerity in my view oh thank you as we speak, we're on the eve of its release. So how are you feeling? Are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling relieved? Uh, is there still a lot of work ahead in promoting this thing? What, what, where is your mindset? Yeah, I'm uh, a little bit anxious and relieved. You know, um, um, I'm kind of doing things different this way to the dismay of others, perhaps. Last time, you know, I, I just quit my, my job again and I did that third record and I kind of had some stars in my eyes and I had this whole deal thinking, man, I'm I'm not getting any younger here. This is my last chance to try to do something. And I just went all out on it, man. I went and played gigs and, and you know, went on the road, did a lot of business, and, you know, and, and begged my label for to give me a publicist and all this kind of, I just tried to play the game. And, 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 and I don't know, it didn't quite quite work out the way I'd, I'd hoped. And, and I just didn't like playing the game. I learned something about myself. I hate the game. I hate all this. <laughs> I, I hate all this, this, the politics and, and, and the, the whole deal behind it. And I just told myself, I didn't want to do this again, you know? And, and so when this opportunity came out to make this record, which is kind of a fluke in itself, I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that again. I just want to do it for fun. I want to do it for the right reasons. Uh, if I can make a splash in Memphis, that is good enough for me and, and, and so be it. And that's kind of what I'm doing right now. And, and I'm a lot less stressed out and, 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 my, and, my, and my heart feels better for it. Do you feel it wasn't worth it because of the tangible results or because of what you had to give up? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe you, you kind of, I kind of, this is me being self-deprecating a little bit, but, but I just, just kind of learn there. There's just a million people out there trying to do this. You know what I mean? And, 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 and I kind of want this whole deal is I'm, am I even really that good? You know? And, and I kind of went through a whole lot of stuff like that, and, you know, and, and, and I, I hated it. I, I hated doing that to myself. It was just a letdown of it all, the expectations. And so, so I just told myself, I'm going to do that again. I'm just going to go where the love is and, and I'm just going to, just try to be sincere to myself and, and, and if it's sincere, then hopefully people will follow, you know, and, 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 and here I am now, you know, just, just doing it. Cause I, cause I love it. Not because I'm looking for any, any kind of in, end result, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You do, you do the work because it needs to be done. Exactly. You know, and that's kind of where I'm at now. And, and, uh, this whole record laugh to, to be honest, I mean, I kind of thought I was done with making records for a while, you know, like, like that last record came out mad at love and, and that thing just took forever to make. And, 
you know, there's all kinds of cool people involved, but, but man, the whole thing just stressed me out. And then, and then putting it out stressed me out. And then, and then the whole game of it all stressed me out. And I was like, you know what? I'm done for a while, you know, and I'm 47 years old and, and no one needs to hear from me for a while, <laughs> you know, and, and I believe that I still do actually a little bit, but, but, uh, a few years later, uh, uh, I mentioned to, to, to Ronnie Russell, my, my label owner uh, of Mad Jack, that how much I really love the Delta Joe Sanders record. Maybe one day Reba Russell and Don Hopkins, Hopkins can can, can uh, produce a record on me. And that was just a conversation. And all of a sudden, Reba's messaging me and Ronnie's messaging me with the green light saying, man, it's on. Y'all go make that record together. I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I just assumed Mad Jack was done with me after three records, you know, and and uh, so that it came together really quick. Like I didn't plan on making another record for another couple more years, but this one just sort of fell into my lap and, and uh, I just went for it. And I'm, I'm so glad I did. Yeah. I've seen you post on Facebook that you felt it was really important to have a female perspective yeah, on this absolutely. record in terms of the production and, and making the album. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm, I'm curious, what did Reba and Don bring to the table that was so essential? Uh, they brought it all to the table in, in many ways, you know, so so all these songs, you know, when I got the green light to make a record, I just, I, you know, I, I already had a whole batch of songs cooking for myself. These are songs I never really planned on recording. They were just kind of ditties. They really were. You know, remember the beginning of the pandemic? It was all about web shows. Remember that? And and, uh, and I really felt like I kind of found myself in the middle of all that, like like my, 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 my creative thing. It's like, wow, this is kind of what I do. Like I love just entertaining and talking and playing guitar and being silly and, and playing songs. And I really feel like I found myself, I found myself in a way during those web shows. And, and then I started literally writing songs for the web shows, which was kind of crazy because the web shows kind of got sort of popular, I guess. And I did like five of them. So I was writing for my web shows. It's like, Oh, I'm going to do this song here for my next web show. And, and all these songs are these really kind of happy, lighthearted songs, anti-pandemic, anti-COVID, anti politics songs you know what i mean because you know i had all kinds of people watching and then of course i kind of wanted to recreate that spirit a little bit on a record and 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 i told reva and dawn that and 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 that was their vision too you know just pull back the layers strip it down just be you give us give us you you know sing play your acoustic guitar and this is not layer it with too much crap you know what i mean and just and just be be real and that's kind of what happened you know who are the players you have on this one? So, uh, uh, probably my, my, my magic sauce, uh, is, is Will Sexton. So I've gotten to know Will over the past couple of years. You know, he moved here from Austin, Texas. Uh, that's Mr. Amy LeVere. And, uh, uh, me and him hit it off, man. I really, really, really look up to that guy. You know, he's just one of my favorite people in the world. And I've learned so much from that guy. That guy's just like a guru and just a great guy, you know, and, and uh, we're in a house band together for Bible and Tire at Bruce Watson's place. We play on all his gospel records together. I play bass, Elizabeth King, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and Will's always, and, and I've always kind of kept my solo thing separate from that. You know, like like Bruce is in the gospel and, and you know, and kind of, kind of edgy rock and roll and edgy songwriters. And I've always just kind of, you know, I'm just, to Bruce, I'm, I'm the bass player, which I'm totally cool with. I absolutely love being it, but I never really tried to force myself on Bruce, you know, with what, with what I do. Uh, but 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 Will always kind of, he kind of took a liking to, to what I do, and, and he was always very encouraging. And it's like, let's play a gig together, you know, let me play a few, you know. And he always had ideas, and you know, and and then it just it was just natural to bring Will on this project. 
and he he brought the cool stuff every time. You know, he just walks in and flops his hands around and, and his magic, and he leaves like 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 the tooth fairy. It's crazy, <laughs> you know. Are you playing bass on the record as well? Uh, Landon Moore is the is playing bass. I'm I'm playing bass on one song. I think Landon Moore plays bass on three songs. And then the rest of the record is just acoustic, man. It really is just a folky acoustic record, you know, just kind of kind of represent what I do live, you know, recreating that. Coffin Half Full is kind of a bluegrass <laughs> thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that's one of the ones so, you sent me, and I listened to it right before we came on. And I, I really I really liked that one, and I also thought it was kind of funny. You know, a lot of songwriters shoot for, like, the wedding market, but you're, you're going for that funeral cash. Absolutely, man. I mean, the whole the whole record, man. I mean, the record's called "Until We Meet Again." You know, the 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 hit song on the record is called "Fishing in Heaven." So there's definitely some death on this record. So so call it heavy, but I think it's kind of I think it's kind of cute and cool. But yeah, coffin half full. <laughs> that that's just a was one of those songs, man. I, I wrote it doing all those web shows. I think I wrote that song like one hour. Uh, my friend Ronnie Russell, the owner of Mad Jack, I remember. Uh, I think this is in the beginning of all the pandemic business, you know what I mean? And the, and the, and the, and the, and the coffins are just stacking up, man. And, and, and I remember he, he made a post on Facebook going, going, you can't, I think you said you can't have a coffin half full, like compared to like a, a glass half full or something. And of course, maybe in the songwriter dude, it's like, Oh, there's my song. So, uh, I kind of wrote a silly song about it. Pretty much, uh, the song's about being at your own funeral, which I think is kind of hilarious. And I always kind of thought it was kind of funny and kind of bullshit, too, that you go to a funeral and they're saying all these awesome things about you, knowing damn well you weren't that awesome. <laughs> you know, I remember being at my dad's funeral, who, who I loved him more than anything in the world. He, he's why I do this, you know, but my, my dad was was kind of a dick. You know, he, he, he was kind of grumpy and was in a bad mood a lot, and you know, and then you. Then you go to his funeral and he's like, oh, he was such a this, that, and that, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, me and my brother looking at each other going, no, it wasn't. <laughs> and just kind of but laughing. It was, it was sweet. You know what I mean? So the whole song is just about me being at my own funeral, calling bullshit on everybody. Go, man, y'all know damn well I wasn't that good of a person, man. This is what I did. You know, so that was the gist of it. You know, 1000% that song is getting played at your funeral now. Probably is, man. Ain't that some bull? Like a coffin half full. I'm so sorry I died. Jesus Christ. Yep. <laughs> Bring it on. You have a release show for this record coming up soon, yes? Yes. I do have a release show coming up on the on the 4th of March at the Green Room. And uh, uh, I think there's a few tickets. I got the low ticket alert a few days ago. So I'm, we're thinking it's, it's going to be a sellout, quite sure. So, But uh, uh, I'm really excited about it. And I'm kind of a little nervous, too. Performing is what stresses me out. You talk about writing and, and preparing for a record, man. That, that's the fun stuff, man. But but putting a show together and have, having to perform in front of people and sing in front of people with a band, uh, that still kind of makes me a little bit nervous. So, so to be honest... I'm really looking forward to just getting that behind me and it's, and then just enjoying, you know, the result of it all, but actually just it being over kind of like Christmas day. You know what I mean? So, but I'll have the whole band there. Why does that make you nervous? It seems like you'd be well seasoned to that sort of thing by now, man. Uh, I guess there's a little bit of hype behind it and, and, and I'm most comfortable playing by myself. That's what I do. I'll play by myself all day long. I love it. I think that's why I really enjoyed the whole web show thing, but but, you know, when I get get in front of a band, you know, and the volume comes up and I'm having to stand up and, 
and remember words, which I'm terrible at. I still can't remember words. You know, all that just kind of makes me nervous. But just playing with with a band kind of makes me nervous. I don't do it a whole lot, so I'm not I'm not super seasoned as a as, as a guy fronting a band. You know what I mean? So that that's that's the only thing that makes me nervous. I know you've been doing some work as a producer lately as well with Bailey Bigger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, man. That's that's been a whole lot of fun, man. I've I've always wanted to produce, and and I've you know I've produced a few records in the past. You know, I produced James and Ultrasound's first record. Uh, I think it was a uh, uh, Bad to Be Here, and uh, and then I did Jed Zimmerman last year, and then this Bailey thing came up, and 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 I'm really excited about this. And we we uh, uh I met her at a songwriting competition. We both entered a songwriting competition, and we both lost. But the good thing that came out of that is that we both met. We found each other, you know, and, and she was about 17 or 18 at the time. She was from Marion, Arkansas. And, you know, you know me, I like my Arkansas people. So I kind of felt a little little kindred spirit there. And I met her mom. Her mom was, like, super cool and gave me her business card and all that. And then I just reached out to her. I was like, hey, what, what, do you, what are your plans? What are you doing? You know, because I, I thought she really had something special. She does. Her voice just her whole thing, man. She's got that X factor, man. The girl's a star, man. Y'all just wait. And, uh, uh, and we started writing a little bit together and, and then that led into, uh, uh, getting her a little single at big legal mess. And that was a really good experience for her. Kind of got her on the, on the national stage a little bit, and, you know, and then, and then I hooked her up with the magic people for a full, full length record. And then, uh, I signed myself up to produce it. <laughs> and, uh, it's awesome. We did that at Jim Dickinson's ranch with Kevin Houston and we just, we just made a live record. I mean, I know people always say live record. Now this was live, dude. We, we set up in one room. There wasn't even a control room, man. It was just one room with a bunch of mics. Kevin had his console right there next to us. I could have like hit him over the head. We just hit the record button and we played live vocals and all. And, and, uh, and I think it came out great. I'm really proud of it. And you know, there's, there, there's some, there's some live skeletons on it, but, uh, but, uh, it, it's a hundred percent real. And I, and I think it's awesome. And I think folks are going to, respond to it fingers crossed i had bailey on the podcast a few months ago and she told a story about the spirit of dickinson sort of intervening in the recording process <laughs> yeah 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 what's your yeah, version that, that, of that? That, probably about the same as her version uh uh um yeah it was just hot i mean it's mississippi it's cold water mississippi it was in july i mean when i say hot i've never been that hot form of life and you're in a barn. Things pretty much a barn. You know what I mean. And and and, and you can only turn the air conditioner on in between takes. This is like a little window unit, you know, or whatever. Actually, they did have AC. Uh, but anyway, the AC went out. Make a long story short. And man, we've really got hot. So if it's 95 degrees outside, you can only imagine how how, how hot it is inside that little non-insulated little barn-looking thing. And and uh, we were absolutely cooking. And I was okay with it, but I was really concerned with her. You know, she's she's young, and you know. And, She's probably not used to that kind of stuff, you know, and, 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 uh, uh, and she, she, I don't think she was very happy <laughs> about being so hot, but I like to say that, that it kind of maybe made us play a little bit better. It definitely kind of brought something to the spirit. And, and then, uh, I was talking to my buddy, Bruce Watson, uh, uh, the next day, he's like, man, the power went out or the AC went out. We're cooking, we're burning up. It was, it was really kind of was rough to be honest. And he's like, you know what? That's Dickinson used to, make his players uh, 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 record with no heat or with no air condition saying that it made him play better. I was like, Oh, well, I guess Jim intervened and stepped in on the session because I think it made us play better. <laughs> so that's, that's my story. Are you possibly up for playing something, Mark? 
Ah, you want, you want me to whip out my guitar, huh? Hold on, hold on. Let me grab it right here. You want me to play something live, huh, right? If you don't mind. Let's do it. Let's see. Hmm. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear it good. All right, let's see. Let's see. I, I didn't really practice this, but let's just see what happens, okay? So this song is uh, it's kind of a mellow one, and let's see what happens here. Uh, it's called Fishing in Heaven. I'll be fishing in heaven. Where I want to be I've seen this whole world now And it's ain't enough of me There'll be no crying I'll be with all my friends I'll be fishing here in heaven Until we meet again Every dinner on the table like it was back home But I'll be in a good place And I won't be alone Brothers and sisters With my beautiful sweet mom I'll be fishing here in heaven I know it won't be long I know a spot when you cross over Beneath the shade of a willow tree The high above a supernova Well, I am free My people, I hope to see you there. Be good to one another and those who need a prayer. It's a fandango, a dance we all live. I'll be fishing here in heaven until we meet again. I'll be fishing here in heaven. How'd that work out? That's beautiful, man. Man, you kind of put me on a the spot there. I was ready to sing that song, but but uh, but but yeah, it, it worked. It was cool. I, I left out a verse though. Try to keep it kind of short for the podcast because I'm I'm always considered of podcasters. So. Well, you you certainly could have kept going, but uh, that does you know now now people have to check out the album to hear the mysterious missing verse. Yeah, you want to hear the missing verse? It's about when I dip my big toe in the river of Jordan and all that kind of business, man. I got all biblical in the in the in the, in the, in the missing verse. So so yeah, y'all go listen to it on Spotify to, to go find the missing verse. <laughs> or, or or maybe not the dreaded Spotify. People are real anti Spotify. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go Apple or whatever. Just, why don't you just go buy my, my, my CD down at, Sh- at Shangri-La, what you need to do. Uh, yes, I made CDs. Don't laugh at me. I made like 250 of them. You gotta, I had to have something to give out. And and even on my CD, I, I had a sense of humor. On my CD, it says, 
listen or use it as a coaster or something to, to the gist of that. You know? So <laughs> listen to the music or use it as a coaster for your drink. But, uh, but anyway, I made some CDs and, and, and just got like, I, I like to hold something. I know I'm old fashioned. I like to hold something, look at things and know who played on things. And, and, and vinyl is just so huge now and it's so expensive and it takes like five years for it to come out, you know? So for a little indie, sometimes it's tough, but, but hopefully next time I'll do some vinyl or, or maybe a, a 10 year release of blues for Lou on vinyl. That's my, that's my hopes. Wink, wink. If anybody's listening. Before I let you go, I just have to ask, you're kind of a self-deprecating guy. Do you feel like you generally have to qualify the things that you do with some measure of self-deprecation? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I've never really thought about it. Actually, I've never really thought about it too recently. Uh, uh, there's just I did this this thing with Diddy TV. These five questions with Diddy TV a few weeks or a few days ago, and and they wrote a little piece about me, and they said that in the piece too. And I was like, damn, am I really that bad? But I, I guess I am. I, I guess I just still can't believe that I'm doing this. You know, even even ten years later, it's like, wow, I'm, I'm actually a singer songwriter dude, and and people I have a few people who like what I do, and and so it's still kind of unbelievable to me. You know. I, I still just think of myself as, as, as the side man, you know, just back there playing bass for people, which I'm totally happy doing, you know, in the spotlight, but not too close to the spotlight. So, so I guess to answer your question, I mean, yeah, a lot of it is just pinching myself thinking, wow, this is, I'm, I'm really doing this, you know? So, so it's a, it, it's a good thing. You're really doing it, Mark. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And, I, and I'm on your podcast right now, man. We're, we're both doing it. We're, we're both doing it together. Yes, sir. And uh, I look forward to hopefully uh, being able to do something together with you when I'm back in Memphis, you know, hopefully sometime this year, next year, sometime. Man, holler for real. And, and I, I think I think things are coming back. You know, I don't want to jinx it, you know, until another crazy wave comes or something. But but but, yeah, the phone's starting to ring a little bit, and, you know, and guys like you are calling me, want to want me to be on their podcast. And, and, and so I'm very hopeful for the future as far as music goes and, and playing live and, and doing things again. So, well, man, I look forward to seeing you around Memphis, man. Jay, I appreciate it, man. And until we meet again. Yep. Indeed. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. That's the show. Thank you to my guest, Mark Edgar Stewart. Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the opening theme. Thank you to Joey Pegram for the closing theme. Thank you for listening for music news and episode archives. Visit back to the light.net. I hope to see you all March 17th at the Green Room in Crosstown for Back to the Light Songs and Stories. But until then, or until the podcast comes back in April, please take care, y'all. Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.